School closures have emerged as a centerpiece of efforts to slow the spread of the COVID-19 virus. As of this recording, 46 states, Puerto Rico, and the District of Columbia have made the difficult decision to order all schools to close. As a result, they now face the even more difficult question of when schools should reopen. Kansas and Virginia have announced that the closures will remain in place through the end of the academic year, and California Governor Gavin Newsom has said that he may soon follow their example. Is that the right call? Or would a more adaptive policy, one in which temporary closures are used to respond to changes in local conditions, offer a better way forward? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is John Bailey, an advisor to the Walton Family Foundation and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. John previously served in the White House, the U.S. Department of Education, and the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he helped develop the National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza. His new column, COVID-19 Closed Schools, When Should They Reopen, is available now at educationnext.org. John, welcome to the EdNext podcast. It's so great to be with you. So first, let me say that I hope you and your loved ones are healthy and safe, and that I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me during these uncertain times. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, we're great, uh, and it's been Actually, excellent to have the dog around. So Bentley has been awesome uh, as part of my social distancing therapy. Great. Uh, and I also appreciate your willingness to tackle the very difficult question of when schools should reopen. In a sense, it's one of those questions where the only honest answer is it depends. But your piece was helpful in thinking through exactly what it depends on. Let's start with the closure decision itself. You were out front early in suggesting the likely value of school closures based in part on your role developing the National Strategy on Pandemics back in 2005. Tell us a bit about that experience and how school closures fit into the development of that strategy. Uh, great, so great question, thank you. Um, so back in 2005, the context was, uh, we had health officials, at Health and Human Services, as well as CDC, and then Homeland Security Council officials, who were concerned that if a pandemic uh, influenza found its way into the United States of the same sort of intensity and challenges that were created in the 1918 uh, pandemic, they were concerned that we didn't have a good response strategy. And so the, the idea was to start pulling together all the different agencies to begin thinking about what would the federal role be, what's the role of states and governors, as we're seeing really playing out very strongly right now, and then what's the roles and responsibility of different players at the local level, including businesses, schools, uh, and a lot of other different types of organizations. And it was a chance to launch a planning effort to think through the different phases of a pandemic and what the roles would be, but also what were the tension points or frictions between agency decisions between vertically, uh, between the federal government, state government, and, and local government. And uh, it was a chance to kind of put all that together into a plan. We did a tabletop exercise that was led by uh, John Brennan, uh, who then went on to lead um, the CIA for President Obama to just also tease out when should the feds intervene uh, at the state level if states don't take aggressive action or take too aggressive of an action. Um, <clears throat> so that was the, the context. School closures uh, were were teed up by health officials very early in those conversations. And it, it's for two reasons. Uh, one, what has become sort of mainstream right now is this whole idea of flattening the curve, that with a pandemic, with any sort of viral outbreak, you always get this sort of rapid peak 
uh, of cases uh, followed by a drop. And what you want to do is flatten that curve, flatten that peak, so it doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system. And you, so you see this every year with the seasonal flu. There's always a spike in flu cases, and then it goes down. But with a pandemic that's like supercharged, and it, it overwhelms the limited health resources that we have with ventilators, with ICU beds, and with a number of other things. And so there's a bunch of different measures that you can take to flatten that curve, hand washing, social distancing, but based on a lot of research, school closures had suggested that was one of the most effective ways to flatten the curve. Uh, and it also gave time for CDC and health officials to develop and test and deploy a vaccine. And as I understand it, some of the evidence you all were drawing on at that time was looking all the way back to 1918 to the Spanish influenza and some data suggesting that school closures played a role in preventing the spread in different communities across the US. But I guess we also got a little bit more data on this in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic. You uh, write in your article that there's been some evidence that school closures in the US and especially elsewhere were helpful in slowing the spread of that virus. Is that correct? That's correct. Back in 2005, we only had a limited set of studies that we could draw from. Uh, the one being looking at uh, the various infection rates and the curves, if you will, of different cities. And what you found is that a city like St. Louis that uh, very aggressively and proactively closed their schools had a very flat curve, uh, particularly with mortality rates. Cities like Philadelphia uh, and Pittsburgh that waited until later in their infection curve to close schools had much higher mortality rates. And so the, the lesson drawn from this was close schools early to break that transmission uh, chain. Uh, and flatten the curve and buy time for the health officials and hospital systems to be able to care for folks. We have more data to draw from. Those lessons from 2009, there's been other viral outbreaks around the world that uh, have used school closures, and we're actually seeing this play out real time in Italy. There was a region of Italy uh, when the COVID-19 hit that area, closed schools early, and has, has saw a very flat curve. Another region waited uh, weeks later to close the, the, their schools and saw a much higher peak of mortality rates. All those research studies and what the lessons we're learning from China and from uh, Italy is what led to a number of governors taking this unprecedented action of closing schools now as a way of slowing the transmission. And initially those orders were generally for short-term closures, scheduled to last two to four weeks. Why do you think governors took that approach in, and was it the right initial move? I think there is a couple different reasons governors closed schools for two weeks. First, it took advantage of a natural uh, break already built into the calendar, which was spring break for many schools. Second, CDC has always recommended that two-week uh, two closures be used because that's a, the same period of time that um, symptoms end up uh, surfacing. And so you can see if other cases are playing out. But third, it gave governors time to reevaluate based on our evolving understanding of the nature of the virus and if there's any other firmer guidance coming out of CDC and health officials. So I think that's the reason most of them took closures for about two to three weeks. Although now we're beginning to see governors extend that for another two weeks, some to the end of April, and then, as you mentioned in the, at the, the onset of the podcast, we have uh, two states that have suggested that they would close schools for the, the rest of the academic year. 
And so these initial short-term closures mean that governors are facing this decision in real time right now, when should they reopen schools? And as you uh, point out in the piece, there's a lot of uncertainty about what we need to know in order to answer that question. One big source of uncertainty is simply how children respond to the new coronavirus. What do we know about that and why is it important? Yeah, so it turns out COVID-19 is a, is a really big mystery. It's a puzzle for scientists right now. The assumptions from past pandemic planning, the one we did in 2005 and uh, other updates to the plan that the Obama administration did is that typically one of your most vulnerable populations for an influenza are children. And they tend to both get infected and exhibit a lot of these um, most severe uh, symptoms and consequences but they also transmit the virus uh, to other people in their households. And so you close schools both to protect children as well as to break that transmission chain. But COVID-19 is playing out very different. That what we're seeing is the most vulnerable populations tend to be older. Children don't seem to be showing any of the most severe symptoms. And in fact, often are asymptomatic, meaning they may have the virus, but they're not showing any sort of symptoms. And that makes them almost like a super spreader of the virus, meaning they're going about their lives as normal, but they could actually be transmitting and spreading the virus to adults and to other more susceptible populations. So it's difficult to kind of understand how this virus is playing out, who's really at risk, who's transmitting it. There's just a lot of fundamental questions that scientists don't know yet. And as a result, they can't feed that into their data models to then predict uh, what are the most effective ways in the durations of closures that we need uh, in other social distancing measures. So what seems like it should be good news, the fact that children are less susceptible to serious symptoms from the virus could actually be bad news if it allows them to serve as particularly efficient spreaders when they come into contact because no one's aware that they actually are carrying. Is that right? That's correct, right. Now there are many efforts underway to model the diseases spread and inform policy through the results of those models. One of those efforts that's received a lot of attention of late comes from researchers at the Imperial College of London. And their model has generated headlines in part due to its very dire predictions about what could occur if no measures are taken to prevent the spread of the disease, I believe suggesting deaths in the millions. But their analyses also suggest that social distancing can be quite effective. Where do school closures fit into their approach? Yeah, so their, their model suggests that um, you need a number of different types of social distancing measures, home isolation, uh, closing businesses and large gatherings, and also closing schools. And that if you do that in a, a very concentrated period of time, they're suggesting five months, you can actually help suppress some of the viral transmission and lower that curve a bit. But what that also does is the moment you relax those measures, it creates the opportunity for a second wave that would probably come in the fall and winter of next year. Um, and so what their study and model suggests is that even if we take very aggressive actions now, we're likely to face a rebound, another wave of the virus sometime next year, and that what we might have to prepare for are a set of rolling school closures, meaning we may do this all very intensively with all those states closing schools right now, 
but uh, in the next school year, it may be targeted closures for when cases start reaching a certain, a certain threshold uh, with local hospitals, and then closing schools for two to four weeks uh, in an area, potentially a state, depending on how widespread the outbreak is. So the implicit recommendation that comes out of their model, at least as you interpret it, is that uh, governors should be extending school closures through the end of the school year as part of this initial very aggressive five-month social distancing protocol. But that then we might think about a more nuanced policy going forward, where we look at where there's uh, community spread in local communities, large number of people uh, carrying the virus, and maybe enact closures on a more local level. Is that the right approach? That's correct. Uh, that's exactly what the article is suggesting. They, they, they make that as a recommendation. They uh, stop short of saying that's absolutely what government should do. And again, part of it is because there's a lot of data variables that go into those models that, again, we have question marks around. We still don't really understand its transmission uh, mechanisms. We still don't understand if children uh, can accelerate the transmission of this uh, or if they will develop symptoms. And this is also where it's been such a tragedy that we haven't had the widespread testing here in the US because so much of these data models are relying on data that uh, how the pandemic played out in China. We're increasingly feeding in data uh, based on how it's playing out in Italy. But what we really need to know is how that is playing out with symptoms and with other uh, types of medical issues here in the United States. And so the, the faster we can get tests out there and the faster we can get some of that data into these models, the clearer of a picture and a set of recommendations uh, for how long these closures should last here in the United States, but also when's the right time uh, to open up uh, schools. And it can also feed the recommendations for the social distancing measures that will be needed next year. Now, as you acknowledge in the piece, not everyone is on board with the idea of extended school closures. You point to experts like Thomas Frieden, who directed the Center for Disease Control under President Obama, and Andy Slavitt, another Obama administration official, both of whom have been skeptical of the value of school closures. What's their perspective, and, and why do their recommendations differ? Well, I think, again, their recommendations uh, just really reflect the disagreement within the scientific community. And, it, and, it, and again, it reflects that we know so little about this particular virus. And so it, it's um, the, the question, even CDC's guidance reflects this to some degree, that again, the, the traditional pandemic playbook, the one that we created in 2005, CDC's guidance during 2009, where during episodes like this, you close schools for, for two weeks. What their most recent guidance says is they're, they're not really sure there's much value for the two-week closures. They think there's greater value for longer duration closures. Again, CDC stopped short of saying that's absolutely what should happen. And I think that's what you're seeing playing out with some of these other former CDC officials is that they're looking at the data. The data has a lot of question marks. And so uh, they're falling on, on, on the side of not overreacting and closing schools for the rest of the academic year but instead maybe buying a little bit more time and then making a decision uh, in a few weeks. And of course, the effectiveness of any social distancing measure, including school closures, is going to depend in large part on how Americans respond to those measures. Uh, and one of the issues that you bring up is the issue of fatigue from social distancing, that some of the measures 
may become less effective over time as people maybe stop following them quite as, as closely. In the case of a school closure, I imagine that would look like, yes, you close schools, but, but students are still getting together with their friends from school outside of the school environment, effectively defeating the purpose of the closure. How concerned should we be about that? Yeah, I think there's two concerns packed into that question. One is just how will kids respond? And uh, what we saw during 2009, there were actually a couple studies, both in Texas and Massachusetts, that surveyed uh, students to say, how, what did you do when your school was closed? And uh, far from social distancing, they, they found other ways to gather. They went out in public, they ate out, uh, they saw other friends. So they, they found ways around the social distancing benefits, so to speak. Now, that's a little bit more difficult now that so many other parts of the country are shut down, that they don't, can't go to restaurants, they can't go to movie theaters. Uh, but it does sort of show that, again, unless people really buy into this, uh, the social distancing benefits get mitigated. But there's also this fatigue too. Like, uh, it's been amazing to sort of see the country come together and families just very quickly absorb all of a sudden having to homeschool their kids, have to not be going to work, they're facing enormous economic uncertainty, and they're taking a lot of um, uh, individual and household pain right now for the public health benefit. But as this plays out over time, there's always a leakage. There's always, as people grow more fatigued with that sacrifice, uh, they're going to start uh, not adhering to this rigorous social distancing protocol and wanting to get back out, uh, wanting to start uh, working again, wanting to start meeting their friends. And so it's a little bit of the hesitancy of people uh, from using school closures because if you use them too early, that fatigue sort of sets in over time and some of the benefits dissipate with it too. Okay, so we have an environment with a lot of uncertainty, but it seems clear that education leaders and policymakers should expect an extended closure at this stage uh, that may even extend into the next academic year at a minimum they should be prepared for the prospect of localized closures in the next academic year. How should they be getting prepared? What should they be doing to ensure that they're ready for the situation they're gonna be facing throughout the rest of this academic year, but even more into the next? So I think there's three things. I mean, first, I, I, I think they should assume a worst case scenario, meaning, Assume if schools are going to be closed for the rest of the academic year, what will they need to help mitigate the learning loss that their students would be facing? So, I mean, schools have heroically but hastily thrown together remote learning plans, uh, distribution sites to help with getting meals uh, to students. Those were all put together very quickly. And, and now there's a little bit of time to start reflecting on what's working, what's not, what are the gaps and how do we just sort of patch together a, a system to help serve kids and teachers and families for the remainder of the school year. But then second, I think we need to use that summer as a chance to do preparations for the next school year. So again, we're assuming a worst case scenario where schools open, but there's gonna be rolling closures. And rolling closures could last two to four weeks, meaning the type of disruptions we're seeing now. It gives districts and policymakers a chance to really get remote learning plans on better footing, they can do professional development with their teachers, and they can get ready for the new school year. And also, we've always had students that have experienced the summer slide, meaning 
a lot of what they learned at the end of last school year gets lost as they come into the new school year. The summer slide is going to be incredibly long for a lot of students in terms of the amount of learning that they lost over these last couple of months. And so other targeted interventions are going to be needed for some of those students. And then third, schools really need to get ready for this rolling set of closures that we're going to experience the next academic school year. And uh, as we've seen in, in the pandemic plans that have been put out uh, in both administrations, schools are on the front lines of that. Schools are usually in what they call medical surveillance, meaning uh, as children show up with different symptoms uh, or with different absentees, that feeds local health officials, which uh, then feed up to state officials and will likely help trigger uh, some of the closures and other social distancing measures. And so schools are gonna be on the front line of surveillance they're going to be on the front line of helping make sure that kids are getting the education and other supports they need to continue their learning. My guest today has been John Bailey, advisor to the Walton Family Foundation and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You can find his column, COVID-19 Closed Schools, When Should They Reopen, online at educationnext.org. John, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.